2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today I'm delighted to introduce you to the author of a book that I think we all need. The book is called Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind, and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. It's written by Peter Russell with a fabulous forward by spiritual teacher and self-help author Eckhart Tolle. And essentially, Peter Russell's book offers a practical and empowering approach to that age-old quest for letting go of the thoughts and feelings that block our happiness and our peace of mind and all of that stuff and on a personal note i have to tell you that this book has had a huge impact on me in the last couple of days where i've realized that not only does peter russell offer guidance and inspiration but in his book he really teaches you how to free your mind from much of the suffering that we cause for ourselves there's a wonderful chapter in the book as well on forgiveness and the recognition that we can't control everything and in fact sometimes we can't control anything at all The book also teaches you how to let go, let in and let be. And as the quote early on in the book says, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. And that was said by Ajahn Chah. Let me tell you a little bit more about Peter Russell before we meet him. Peter is a leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He actually coined the term global brain with his 1980s bestseller of the same name in which he predicted the Internet and the impact it would have on humanity. He's the author of 12 other books, including Waking Up in Time from science to God, and his most recent letting go of nothing, relax your mind and discover the wonder of your true nature. He has studied theoretical physics, experimental psychology and computer science at the University of Cambridge, and meditation and Eastern philosophy in India. And in the 1980s, he pioneered the introduction of personal growth programs to corporations. His mission? to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate their teachings on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. And he does all of this in this slim sleek, and beautiful little book. Peter Russell, welcome to Finding Your Bliss.
1: Lovely to be with you, and thank you for that introduction. Of course. It makes me feel, ah, that's me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've done all of that, you have. Peter, can you speak about why letting go is so important and what it can do for you when you're able to achieve it?
1: Ah, yes. One almost has to look at the opposite of that, is why is holding on, so disadvantageous you know when we hold on we create tension in ourselves we probably don't see things clearly as they really are because we're seeing them through some mindset some perspective that we're holding on to and generally you know, it's the holding on that creates suffering. And that's what the Buddha saw two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, his first teaching is more four noble truths is, one, we all suffer, by which he meant not just physical, but the root meaning of it is actually discontent. We all feel discontent. Yes. And then the second truth is clinging clinging to what we want, what we think should happen, how things should be, whatever it is, our clinging, our holding on that creates the discontent. So when we let go of anything that's actually causing us discontent, that discontent fades away. And that's what, you know, that quote you read at the beginning. Basically, when we let go, we come back to ourselves. We feel more at ease. We feel more at peace. Our hearts can be more open. It leads us to the way we want to live our lives. I mean, how we really want to live comes from, first of all, letting go of the various, whatever they are, beliefs, attitudes, ideas, attachments that actually stop us being our true self. Mm-hmm. And every tradition talks about it in some way or another. Whether You mentioned forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of our judgments and grievances. Or many traditions talk about surrender. That's just another word for letting go. Opening up is again, letting go. So it, it's there throughout most traditions.
2: The combination of your accent and what you're talking about is so delightful. I just have to say that. I'm sure my listeners are thinking the same well, thing. Well, I, I hope
1: I hope it doesn't get in the way because sometimes, you know, I realize talking to American audiences or just American friends, I sort of go off on something in my English accent and they look puzzled. I realize, oh my God, they haven't actually, they didn't hear what I was saying because my, you know. Anyway, so anytime I say things in English that aren't understandable in American, just ask me to repeat it. <laughs>
2: I love it. I'm Canadian, so I I love it. We're Canadian. You mention in the book that when you first learned to meditate, you realized how valuable letting go could be. And this began when you studied with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of Transcendental Meditation. What did you primarily learn from him and what a gift to have studied with him?
1: Oh, what I learned from him. Well, obviously, the meditation practice. And in the meditation practice, he was going against all that sort of traditional wisdom I'd heard about how you have to put a lot of effort into meditation. And if you do it and try for years, then you may eventually reach some enlightenment or the true self. And it was all a lot of hard work. and, And when I read him, it was like, he was saying no, you know, meditation is actually mm. letting go and sink, just sinking back into your natural state of mind. And the transcending isn't anything exotic. It sounds exotic. The transcend means to go beyond. And so it's just about going beyond thought, going beyond the thinking mm. mind to noticing your being that's there behind the thinking mind. So, And it was just so, so simple. Once I got it that you don't need to try, it's like, oh, this This is good. This is what I've been trying various other techniques, but this is what I've been looking for. But that was just the beginning of what I learned from him. Um, He was, I mean, he was deeply rooted. His own tradition goes back into deep roots in Advaita, what's called non-duality these days, and the Shankara's teaching on Advaita. And so studying with him and studying with him in India, I got a deep, deep understanding of that whole tradition the nature of consciousness, the nature of self. And to be honest, I would say probably 50% of what's in the book, the key ideas go back to my time with him. He had a profound influence on my, mm-hmm. my understanding of what spirituality is about. And he was putting it in you know non-spiritual, non-Indian terms, just very everyday terms. So he had a mm-hmm. profound effect on me in two ways, and I just feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity to study with him.
2: Wow. Wow! what a gift. And you continued on by studying a very famous book that many spiritual people have studied. And that, of course, is A Course in Miracles, which deepened your practice. And then you also became familiar with the Buddha's teaching, who really shows us that holding on to our attachments to what will make us happy is the primary cause of suffering, which you say in the book, and that we can free ourselves from suffering by letting go of Grasping, letting go of our ideas of how things should be. And this is all beautiful stuff, but sometimes it's very hard to put it into practice. So can you tell us the story about how for a two day period you were resenting your partner and you just couldn't let go and nothing you tried seemed to work. You tried to forget, not to harp. You tried to shift, but you felt resentful and it was souring the relationship. And you knew that the problem lay in how you were seeing things, but you still remained stuck. How did everything change almost instantly and what did you do to affect this change?
1: Right. Well, to step back a bit to the context of what I did, I'd already realized, and this was probably about 20 years ago now, I'd realized that what we hold on to is not so much things or other people's behavior or any of that. What we hold on to is the lens through which we see things, the mindset, how we see things. So if I'm seeing a person through a certain lens, then I interpret that if, if someone's upset me by something, then I'm seeing them through the lens of anger and what I think should have happened and all that stuff. And what I realized was what we're letting go of is the lens through which we see things, the mental lens through which we see somebody. And as you say, I've been, you know, we, it was just a small little thing that between us, but you know, it was sad the relationship and we were just not not feeling at ease with each other. And I thought, oh, this will blow over soon enough. And then I just thought, well, hang on, what I need is is another way of seeing this situation. And so I just stopped and just asked myself, and this is a practice I use have used continually ever since. I just stopped and just you know, sat quietly and said, Okay. Could there be another way of seeing this situation? Just could there, possibly? And this was something I'd sort of got also from, He's mentioned, the Course in Miracles. It's one of the sort of principal ideas there. Could there be another way of seeing this? And what was amazing was it was instant. And what came up was, like, here is another human being navigating her way through the world with her background, her needs, dealing with me and my, my needs, and... <laughs> love just returned instantly. And I realized we'd sort of been out of love for two days. And instantly it was like, here's love. It's just understanding, seeing who she was. And I felt at ease again. It's like there was the love for her and there was the ease in me. All that trouble, all that sort of, you know, discontent that we been going on for two days evaporated.
2: Can you repeat the question? What was the question or the phrase that you told yourself?
1: The phrase, I always make it totally open just it's like could there perhaps be another way of looking at this if you say what is another way of looking at this the mind gets engaged and starts looking for something Mm -hmm. so the whole point is just to open it up to your inner being Mm -hmm. it's like a prayer to myself Mm -hmm. is there possibly who knows it's the attitude more of anything you know is there possibly who knows maybe another way of seeing this situation and that just opens it up and what i find in my life is 50 percent of the time something happens, something shifts. And, you know, 50% of the time it changes my world. The other 50% is like, well, there was no harm in asking sort of attitude. And so, yeah, that's what I do. I just, and the question, I mean, that time, the answer came immediately, which was like, wow. But other times, you know, I'll ask it, nothing seems to there. And then, you know, 10 minutes later or a few hours later, it's like, ah, yes, okay. So what we're doing is we're letting go of the mindset through which we are seeing the other person or the situation. So, to me, mm-hmm. this is a really practical way of letting go. You're not trying to let go, but what you're doing is asking if there's another way of seeing things which actually dissolves nice. the holding on to your particular way of seeing things at the time. It's one of the most valuable techniques I've sort of developed.
2: It's wonderful. And I think not only for anger and forgiveness and all of this, but even for fear or for anxiety. Absolutely. Asking that question is brilliant because it just, yeah. right? Lovely. Anytime I feel stuck in something
1: and you know I've tried something and it's not working, could be fear, could be anything, or it could be caught up in planning something. And I'm so, you know, caught up in what I think should happen. I noticed it in writing. I mean, sometimes... Being a writer, sometimes I get stuck, I get writer's block. And you know, the initial yes. temptation is to push through it, push through it, make it, and then I just say, hang on, is there another way of seeing what's happening here? And usually Lovely. what comes up instantly, ah, you know, I took a wrong turn back there, or I'm trying to make a point in the wrong way. It basically allows my inner voice to speak to me. Rather than being stuck yes. in what my ego is telling me, it allows the inner voice to say, Ah, here.
2: We're going to get to the ego soon because I know you have lots to say (laughs) in chapters and chapters about the ego. But I want to just ask you, you, I love when you write that after the death of a beloved pet or a devastating breakup of a relationship, people often say things like just move on or things will get better. But you say that just letting go under these conditions can be extremely difficult. One of your other suggestions is that the grip we need to release is a mental one. Can you say more about that? Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, in a sense, when I say the grip is a mental one, I'm talking about the grip is holding on to a particular way of seeing something. And that's what grips us. We're holding on to something like that. But also, I mean, where that quote started is that we find letting go is hard because we think it's something we have to do. You know, I've tried to let go, but I just couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the trying to do the letting go that I think is in the way. We're already mm-hmm. doing too much in the holding on. So the letting go is like, it's relaxing. It's not trying to let go. And, you know, in the case of grief or something, I mean, what I suggest in the Mm -hmm. book is we do the opposite. We actually allow in the experience fully. Because if there's some uncomfortable experience, whether it's fear or grief or anything else, the sort of reaction we have, we, in the general, you know, Mm -hmm. tone of things, is to push it away. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable.
2: We don't want uncomfortable experiences. We want pleasure. We're hedonists. We are pleasure seekers. We want only good. And you're saying invite it in and sit with it and and sort of go through all of it. And then what? Well,
1: it then begins to dissolve. And you mentioned early on, you know, I talk about letting go as letting in and letting be. And that's the key thing I came up with in my sort of years of looking at letting go. Lots of people have said, let it be. You know, the Beatles, <laughs> many <laughs> spiritual teachers have said, let yes. it be. But often they're talking about letting the situation be. It's like, okay, someone's, you know, being stupid. Let it be. Don't worry about it, etc. But there's another way of letting be, which is, Letting the experience be. So if someone's being stupid and I'm feeling irritated, is about wow. letting the irritation be, not trying to get rid of the irritation or push it away, actually open up. Ah, this is how it feels to be irritated. What's going on in my body? But before you can let it be, you have to let it in. And that's the bit that mm-hmm. I found is often not mentioned and is the crucial bit. So if I'm feeling irritated, I know where my mind is. My mind says, I'm irritated, blah, 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 whatever it is. Mm -hmm, We mm -hmm. go to the head so easily in our culture. But instead, Mm -hmm. come to the body and say, okay, what's going on in my body when I feel irritated? Oh, I notice there's a tension in the jaw or there's a quivering in my stomach. It's like, okay, and what else is there? It's like being curious, being curious as to what's going on in the body because any emotion has a physiological component, a feeling sense mm-hmm. to it. And what happens as you let it in and then just allow it to be, I find almost invariably it begins to soften Because you're giving Mm -hmm. it attention, all the time we push it to the back of our mind, it's holding us. Yes, And this is what Carl Jung said, I mean, what you resist persists. What you resist letting into your awareness is in the background controlling you. So do the opposite. It may seem uncomfortable at first, but when you get the hang of it, it's like, ah, it isn't so bad you let it in, let it be there, and it just begins to soften and dissolve. So in that sense, the letting go begins to happen of its own accord, because you're no longer resisting or holding on.
2: That's so interesting. The title of your book is Letting Go of Nothing. What does nothing in the title (laughs) mean? How can we let go of nothing?
1: That comes back to the mindset bit. What we're letting go of, as I said, is the mindset, the lens through which we see the world. And we don't see the mindset. We don't see the lens. It's not a thing in our world. I mean, to give you an analogy I often used, it's like if you're wearing blue tinted spectacles, mm. you see the world with a blue tinge. But you don't see the spectacles. The spectacles are what you mm. see the world through. So the spectacles themselves are not a thing in the world that you see. They're not mm-hmm. a thing. They're just something that colors the things you see. And the same mm-hmm. with the mindset. We don't see the mindset, but it colors the whole world we see. So if we're seeing something through irritation, that colors the whole world. But mm-hmm. the mindset itself is not something in our world. It's not a thing in our world. It's what we see mm-hmm. the thing. So it's a sort of pun on nothing, right. on no thing. No we're thing. letting go of the no thing of the mindset. We're not letting go of things so much as the no thing of the mindset.
2: Cool. That's so cool. As a life coach, one of the main questions that I always ask clients in a session, sometimes many times during a session is, what do you want? What do you want? And I write a lot about this. What do you want right now? What do you want at this moment? And this is a very big part of your book, the what do you want idea. You say the first question when we're becoming attached to possessions, beliefs, judgments, feelings and grievances, the first question we should ask ourselves is, what do we want? what did you mean when you said that in the book
1: what i do with this in a more practical situation is you know what do you want people may say well you know i want a vacation or i want a new job i want to move somewhere i want another Mm -hmm. partner, i just want to whatever it is we have all these things or Mm -hmm. situations we want which we think will make us happier and so Mm -hmm. what i do with people is go through a process okay why do you want that Why do you want a vacation? Well, I'm too stressed. I need a rest. Okay. Why do you want that? You know, what it comes down to is, well, I'll feel better. Why do you want, you know, whatever it is, a new job? Well, I'll feel better. Whatever it is, the bottom line of everything we do is ultimately we're looking for a better state of mind in one way or another. We're looking to feel more at ease, more content, more open, more loving, whatever it is. But we're looking for a better state of mind and when we realize mm-hmm. that, then it can begin to change our whole approach to life. It's recognising <laughs> this ultimately is what we want. It's what everybody wants, <laughs> is to actually feel better in themselves. That, to me, is the the universal motivation of each and every one of us to be more at peace, more loving.
2: You also say that sometimes people have a materialistic mindset. And there's a huge problem with this because we try even harder to buy more clothes, make more money. And we live in what Indian philosophy calls samsara, which means wandering on endlessly looking for fulfillment. Can you speak more about this? Because I think this is a huge golden nugget.
1: (laughs) That's absolutely fundamental to everything, to the book in various ways, to life. The materialistic mindset. It's really conditioned into us by our our whole society functions on this materialistic mindset. And for me, the materialistic mindset says, if you're not happy, do something, get something, change something, do something in the material world, act. Mm -hmm. It's like the reason you're not happy is something is wrong in the world. So that's the materialist mindset. It's very external, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so we spend a huge amount of time and energy dealing with the external world trying to make it be the way we want in order to be happy Mm -hmm. so that's the materialist mindset and that's what keeps us you know shopping advertising totally (laughs) preys upon that you know you can't be happy as you are but buy this product this service whatever it is take this vacation get this credit card and you will feel better (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the, sort of the hypnosis we're under in our culture. Mm-hmm. And in some way or other, almost every spiritual teaching has said, uh-uh, no, no, that's not the way it is. <laughs> the reason you're not happy is not because you don't have something, it's because of how you are inside, how you're seeing the world, and particularly you're caught up in this story, you must have something. Mm-hmm. So that's what the materialist mindset is about. And it, it runs our lives. And what's interesting is, We all know deep down it isn't true. Deep down, you know, we know just getting whatever we think we should have. We know that getting it doesn't actually make us any happier. I mean, I often ask people, if you really got this, would you be any happier? And they say, "Mm, maybe for a while, but not really. And I said, if you Mm -hmm. don't have it, can you still be happy? And usually the answer is, Mm -hmm. well, yes. Yep. Of course.
2: (laughs) Of course. Well, you actually write in the book that even the Dalai Lama once said, as you write in the final analysis, the hope of every person is simply peace of mind. Yes. And you say that the ideal state is when all of our needs are met. There are no threats to our well-being. And when we have nothing to worry about and we all, as you've just said, want happiness, contentment, peace of mind, fulfillment, bliss, as I would call it. And you call achieving this this state is called natural mind. Yes. Can you speak more about how we can return to our natural mind? Right,
1: yeah. How I define natural mind is nothing exotic. You know, in some traditions, it's a very exotic state of natural mind in some Buddhist traditions. For me, it's just how we are When we're not caught up in worry, excitement, planning, fear, whatever, all these things sort of dull the mind or grey it out in a way. And when we're not worried or whatever it is, anxious or caught up in something, how do we feel? We Mm -hmm. feel at ease. We feel contented. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. You know, it's the sort of thing where, you know, you're watching, you know, the common thing of wonderful sunset or just being in the woods looking at trees or whatever it is. When we're not actually worrying about anything, how do we feel? We feel good. It's simply that. It's that natural quality of feeling good when we stop all the other stuff that gets in the way. I say it veils this natural state of mind. Mm-hmm. So it's something we all know. Mm-hmm. But it's all our thinking about stuff, our worrying, takes us out of it. You see, the natural mind, for me, is a state of contentment. That's its characteristic. Mm-hmm. We are content. There's nothing we're missing. Nothing we're worrying about. So, all our thinking paradoxically creates discontent. Almost everything we think about—not not, not absolutely—but so much of what we think about—did I do the right thing yesterday? What's happening? What am I going to say tomorrow? Blah 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 blah. It's all creating discontent, and so it's mm-hmm. all getting in the way of our feeling a natural mind. And that's not to say you know. There's times thinking is really important. It what makes us human. It's really valuable to, be to think about things and work things out and plan things. But, you know, a lot of the time, it's just, it's not necessary. It's a waste of time. And it's just creating more, more discontent for us unnecessarily.
2: Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of mental chatter. And I think you say that our true nature is one of ease and contentment. And it reminds me of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the solitary stroller, and how he said just Get rid of all your preconceived ideas and notions and prejudices and beliefs and judgments and just breathe in nature and just be when he was a solitary stroller in the middle of the ocean or wherever he was. Yeah. Yeah, Can you speak to that idea?
1: Well, yes, the way I approach it, I mean, it's hard to get rid of everything like that and stay having got rid of it because they keep coming back. These things, for most of us, maybe not for him, you know, (laughs) and for some people, no, but for me, they keep coming back. I just talk from my experience. (laughs) But the point is we can step out of them in the moment. And so the practice that I do and I recommend to others is almost many times a day, whenever I think about it, is just to pause, pause my thinking. It's just wherever my mind is, whatever's going on, Mm -hmm. just to pause Mm -hmm. it. And in that pausing, two things happen. One, I begin to feel at ease because there's a background tension which comes in with a lot of our thinking. So when I pause Mm -hmm. our thinking, it's always a sense of, ah, thank you. Here I am. Yes, I've come home again. And then the other thing that happens is the present moment re-emerges in my experience because our thinking is almost always about the past or the future in some way or other right even if we don't like something in the present it's like it's about the future i want this to go away in the future whatever it is mm-hmm. so our thinking is always about the past or future when we pause the thinking we both feel ah. And I start noticing, oh, there's that bird singing, or there's this, or this, (laughs) oh, this sensation in my knee, or whatever it is. The present reveals itself. I mean, so often people talk about, oh, you must become present. We are already present. We're always present. (laughs) But our attention in the present moment is on the past or future. But we are always Mm -hmm. in the present. So when we take our attention away from the past or future, just by choosing to pause the thought, and by choosing, I just mean to say okay, I'm not going to follow this particular thought anymore. It may come back Mm -hmm. in 10 seconds' time. But in that moment, I'm just choosing, I'm not going to follow you. And when I choose (laughs) not to follow you, it's like, ah, here I am. And the present (laughs) re-emerges in my experience. Mm -hmm. And to do Mm -hmm. that, I actually have notices hanging around my place. I have to keep moving them (laughs) because I get too (laughs) used to them. But the notices just say pause. Just pause. And Whenever I do, it's like, ah, oh, yes. And then by doing that as often as possible, two things happen. One, it starts becoming an easier and easier thing to do. Mm-hmm. To begin with, it may be a bit different. It's like, I oh, I know what it feels like to pause. It's like, ah, oh, yes, here I am. Here's the world. And also, because it is so delicious in a way, it becomes a motivation to do it more yes.
2: often. Yes. Yeah, that's so brilliant. That's so, so brilliant. I just love that. We also all have this thing that you talk about in the book, which is letting go of the story that we tell ourselves. We all have a story, right? Yes. Can you speak to the story? Because that's huge. And I think that prevents us from pausing and being at ease and relaxing and letting go and all the things you're talking about. Right. Yeah. And it's like,
1: it's not one story, it's stories. We have so many different stories going on. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, one we sort of touched on what I need in order to be happy. You know, that becomes a story. I need to have this. I need to have this person be a certain way. I need to be in this situation. That becomes a story we tell ourselves. And so we live in that story. And within that story, we're looking for, how do I get this thing I think I need to be happy? And so we get caught mm-hmm, up in that mm-hmm. story. of How do I get it? And what can I do? So it's the story we tell ourselves. It's basically, you know, most of our thinking is some or other story about ourselves, story about the world, story about other people and it's all in our imagination. It's all just in our imagination, the stories we tell Mm -hmm. ourselves. So that's why, again, coming back to the present, we're stepping out of our different
2: stories. (sighs) That's so powerful. One of the best ways to let go of those stories is just to quiet the mind and really learn how to meditate. We're going to find out all about how to do that after this short commercial break. We'll be right back, back in a moment. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on zoom Radio AM 740. And I'm here with Peter Russell, author of Letting Go of Nothing. You know, Peter, what I also love about this book is that you point out the many different types of meditation, and we just know this now to be true, that meditation is key for us to live more peaceful and happy lives. And you say in some we focus on the breath, or we follow mantra, or an inner light, or some people will focus on an intention, a prayer, a future outcome. And you say, though, that the meditation practices you're the most interested in are those that focus on your thinking mind and those that allow you to relax and settle down, which is the essence of letting it be. How do we achieve this? Can you tell us a little bit more about meditation? Because I think you're a master meditator. (laughs) I
1: don't have a master meditator. I've been meditating a long time and been teaching it a long time. So I have some experience, not mastership. (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) I'm always a student, always learning. And basically what I like to do is share what I've learned with others. What I do in meditation and what I obviously encourage other people to do is, first of all, just to sit quietly and relax the body, you know, by taking a few deeper breaths or whatever. Just tuning into how you are and noticing, you know, are there any tensions in the body? Am I holding on anywhere? Just letting the body relax is the very first thing in meditation because you're not going to have a good meditation if you've got a tense body. So Mm -hmm. letting the body relax and then just noticing What is there in the present moment? I said you know, sensations in the body, you may notice the breath or something, but no intention to focus the attention or anything in particular. It's more like, I call it zooming out. I mean, so often we zoom in and normal thing is to focus the attention. We zoom in on this, we zoom in on that, we zoom in on what someone's saying. This is the opposite. It's like zooming out, a sort of more open, expansive awareness. Here I am. These are the sounds I'm hearing. This is my body. This is how it is. And as we do that, we begin to just feel more at ease because we're not putting so much energy into focusing on something. And then the key thing is what happens is thoughts come in. People often say to me, oh, I've tried to meditate, but I couldn't stop thoughts. No, in my practice, there is no desire whatsoever to stop thoughts because they will come. But when you notice you're caught up in a thought, you know, something, it's usually something that's interesting or important. and We go off on it when it's sort of run out of steam you notice oh i've been thinking this and oh my god i've gone wrong no it's just that's what's happened and you do this thing again of choosing i'm not going to follow that thought anymore and you come back to just noticing where you are what's happening in the moment and as you do that gradually you begin to settle down and In this practice, we're not trying to get any. There's no goal. We're not trying to get anywhere. We're not trying to make anything happen. But in a sense, not adding logs to the fire. You know, the fire is a thinking mind. If you keep adding logs to a fire, it'll keep burning. If you stop adding logs, it begins to die down. If you stop, keep on following one thought to another, if you stop doing that, gradually it dies down. Mm -hmm. And then, and this is a bit, which is often missed out in many meditation techniques, we begin to feel more at ease. We feel more relaxed. But so often people will be so busy meditating that they don't notice where it's taken them. And so what I encourage people to do is like, as you're feeling more at ease, notice what that is like. It is part of the present moment. Don't skip over it. Notice how it feels. There's a sense of ease. There's often a sense of joy there. I always say meditation should be enjoyable. It should be enjoyable, not a chore. So when you notice some increased, little increased level of ease, a little bit of joy, savor it, notice it, let your attention be with that. And I also suggest people, when they start noticing it, is to allow an inner smile to be there. It's like, ah, yes. Just an inner smile in your being just, again, helps you relax, quieten down. So what happens is gradually the thinking mind becomes quieter and quieter and quieter. And you're just more and more open to the present moment and to the joy and peace that comes from just being there. So that's the sort of practice that I do and encourage.
2: I love that. And I think what you're also saying in the book is when you savor how it feels to be present, it motivates us to return to that place more often. I know you've touched on this, but I love that. And I want to say this to the listeners is when you find that moment, do some of these things that Peter is suggesting, smile, take it in, notice it, flex that muscle, that muscle memory of what that feels like so you can return to that place again.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, yes, beautiful, yes. Beautiful, enjoy beautiful, it. Beautiful. I mean, this is why you're meditating. So, you know,
2: Yeah. it's like having it. a
1: good meal. You don't just scoff
2: it down. You taste it. You enjoy it. So true. There's a wonderful story about the parable of the rope in the book where a woman describes how you can achieve true happiness, deep joy, inner peace if you just release one finger from the rope. And in the book, and and I quote you, write. One finger thinks the man, that's not too much to risk for a taste of bliss. So he agrees to this first initiation and he does indeed taste more joy, happiness and inner peace, but not enough to bring him lasting fulfillment. Can you tell us what happens in the parable of the rope as all the fingers are eventually released?
1: It's all about holding on. You know, we hold on, this is the power of that holding on, and we hold on to so many things. And so, he's holding on to the rope because he sees everybody else is holding on and holding on is the way to salvation. And so what she does is coax him little bit by little bit to raise one finger, then another finger until he's holding on just by his own little finger. And in the story, she says, I can't help you anymore. You've got to do the final bit. And so it takes him through all his doubts. You know, can I do this? What will happen? I'm going to fall. This is against everything I've heard. (laughs) But finally he releases the little finger and nothing happens. And then he realizes the reason nothing happens is he's been standing on the ground all along. And Mm -hmm. so the parable is we we stand in the ground of our own being. Mm -hmm. Our own being is where we stand. That's it. And all our holding on is holding on to all these things we think are going to help us. When we let go, it's like... You know, that initial quote we started with, you find when you let go completely, you let go of all the fingers, you find complete peace. And so really it's a parable about that. You let go a little, you find a little peace, let go a lot, you find a lot of peace, let go completely, you find complete peace because you drop back into your own inner ground of being.
2: Mm. Very beautiful stuff. Letting go of the ego, we talked about the ego a little bit before, is the beginning of everything you say. What does it mean to let go of the ego and what can it do for us?
1: Yes. Let me say what I mean by ego, because we use the word in so many different ways psychologists, spiritual teachers. It's, you know, probably one of the most, has <laughs> the most meanings of anything in our culture. Um, to me, there is no thing called ego. We talk about the ego as a thing. If I look inside myself, I don't find some separate bit of me called an ego. What I do find is egotistical thoughts, feelings that come from, you know, my own self-centeredness. So I find a lot of egoic thinking going on. And so I say there's not such a thing as an ego, but there is the ego mode. It's a mode of being that we get caught in very easily. And that ego mode is basically part of, you know, it's a reflection of what we are talking about earlier, the idea that if I got something, I'd be safer. The ego mode is there to keep us safe, to help us survive in the world. some of the time it's important, but a lot of the time it's not necessary. But seeing it as a mode of thinking rather than as something you've got to get rid of changes the whole approach. Rather than if I just meditate and do this and give up this and whatever it is and devote myself to this, then maybe in 20 years' time I will overcome my ego. It's not something to be overcome or got rid of. It's there. It's an ally. It's there to help us, Mm -hmm. and 90% of the time it isn't helping us. (laughs) And so when you see yourself being caught in this egocentric way of thinking, again, we can choose to pause it. There and then we say, okay, I'm not going to follow you anymore. We can just choose to pause it. It'll come back, but we can just choose to pause it in that moment. And so rather than seeing, you know, we have to overcome defeat, get rid of the ego, it's more... We can step out of ego a hundred times a day. Hmm. And when we step out of ego, again, it comes to this thing we were talking about earlier, about that sense of, ah, yes, I'm released from that tension.
2: That hold. that...
1: Yeah, so it's something we can choose to step out of. So we are letting go of ego many times a day, and gradually, gradually, it becomes a more common way of being. So I find basically seeing it this way is something that feels true to me, but also, is a much more useful way of approaching it.
2: Mm-hmm. And approaching life. And you also ask the question, which is the very nature of existence, which is, who am I? And I, I love when you say, well, when we ask this question, we'll often say, well, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a woman. I'm a vegetarian. I'm a mother, a teacher, a therapist. The list goes on and on. But you say that your purest and truest self is much more than all of this. And that all of us share the same sense of being. And in fact, we are all one. Yes. Yeah. Can you speak to that for a moment? Absolutely. It's a big question for a moment, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: it's also, you know, it's very simple as well. What we all share, you know, we're all different personalities. All those things we think we are, how I think I am, and all my personality and qualities and traits, blah, 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 are different from all your qualities and personal traits, etc., etc., etc. But... What the true self refers to is just that sense of I, that sense of I am, which you also have. I mean, I have that sense of I am, and you have that sense of I am. Everybody has that deep down sense of I am. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's that personal sense of being. And that is the self. It's the I that is aware of this experience. It's the I that is aware of talking to you now. It's the I that is aware of, you know, where I am in the room. It's the I that is aware not Mm -hmm. what it's aware of, but the I that is aware is always there. And we all have exactly that same sense of I deep down, how it feels for me to say I am. Not I am anything, but just I am, period. How that feels for me, I believe, is exactly how that feels for you and for everybody else. So it's in that sense we all share the same self deep
2: down. That's lovely. Because the show is called Finding Your Bliss, I was very excited to hear you write about Ananda, And I know that Ananda has been translated to mean bliss or euphoric happiness. But can you explain what that whole phrase means?
1: Yes. This could be a long two hour talk. But,
2: <laughs> <laughs> but the very short version, because I think it's so important and I've never understood the term. Right. Okay. Completely, and I know that you do. Right,
1: It comes from Sanskrit. Sat means Truth it actually means being as well it comes from what is to Mm -hmm. be sat is what is and what is is the truth so -hmm. what is the truth um consciousness is being sat chit chit Chit. means consciousness and so what is the truth is we are conscious we are this conscious being the i am so the i am is the truth sat chit Mm -hmm. i am conscious i'm aware ananda As you say, it's been translated as bliss, I think, ever since the early Europeans started going out to India and discovering all these different religions and things. It got translated as bliss. The root meaning is much more interesting. The root meaning is ananda. Nanda means contentment. Mm -hmm. Now, the long A, ananda, means great. So the root meaning of ananda, when you look at the words, is great contentment which, you know, could easily be translated as bliss. But bliss brings with it all these ideas of, you know, some ecstatic, amazing, you know, orgasmic state of consciousness or something. Great contentment is, you know, brings it down to earth. So that sense of our true sense, the sat, the chit, the I am, is a state of great contentment. That's what it means to me. Lovely.
2: I've always believed that my goal as a a coach and a meditation teacher is to help people achieve enlightenment. And I think you believe this is a worthwhile goal and there are ways to strengthen our ability to achieve it. How do we reframe enlightenment to make it possible?
1: Right. I don't like to use the word because, again, it has a lot of baggage. It thinks it's somewhere we're going to get to, how everything's going to change. I prefer to use the word awakening. It's more neutral and awakening means for me, awakening from the stories we talked about, awakening from the dream world of the ego mind and awakening from all these places our thoughts take us. It's just awakening to this sense of being, this sense of a deep sense of I am. So mm-hmm. it, that's what awakening is, It's awakening to who we truly are.
2: Kindness is a huge part of bliss, and you also say that we're all the same kind. We all want to be at ease, to be treated with respect, to be cared for, appreciated. None of us wants to feel criticized, rejected or ignored. How does the practice of kindness, which is in every religion, help us all?
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. It's so, so important. We all want the same. We all want to be loved. None of us want to be criticized or judged or made to suffer. What could easily happen in any relationship is you say something to me. It was said with great intention, but my psychology interpreted I felt slightly attacked. And we end up in a situation where you have two people, both of whom are looking for love and appreciation, digging the knife in. It's almost like the game goes... If I just make you a little more upset, you'll realize the error of your ways and love me better. It never works. It just spirals the opposite way. So the principle of kindness is very, very simple. It's to say, in any situation, in any interaction with anybody, how can I shape this communication in such a way that the other person feels good on hearing it? So, if it's about some critical feedback you need to give a person, you know, you can shape it by saying, you know, I really value our friendship. It means so much. I want it to improve. But sometimes, when you use this word, I get irritated. Like, you know, being kind about how you do it is about the principle of kindness. Is we all want the same. So, how do we communicate or interact in such a way? that the other person feels loved and appreciated rather than attacked and criticized. And when you do that, everything changes. I mean, I've done it in a a relationship where two people agree that's the way they're living. It's amazing. A whole new quality of love enters into the relationship.
2: Love is really everything. I mean, you say that in the book, that loving yourself loving love. And I want people to read the book to understand more about what Peter Russell says about love and how important it is, like kindness. In the Bible, the Greek word forgive is a thesis, and its meaning is to let go, to let go of something to release our grip. When someone doesn't behave as we expected, we may feel angry, and I'm quoting you a lot here, and hold them responsible for our feelings. But when we forgive someone by letting go of our judgments about them, we actually help ourselves feel better. You write that true forgiveness comes when we recognize deep down that the other person wants the same as us. In their own way, they're seeking to be at peace and to be free from pain and suffering. So, a compassionate heart, more than a judgmental mind, helps everyone feel better. How do we develop this compassionate mind and release these feelings of anger, anxiety, or resentment?
1: Right. I think again, it comes back to this, and we talk about as mindset. We often think of forgiveness as saying, I'll let you off this time. You know, you did wrong, but I'm going to let you off. I'm not going to punish you. You know, as a child, I'm not going to send you to your room. I'll forgive you. That's the sort of... Yeah. Actually, as you mentioned, the Greek word that comes up in the Bible means to let go in the sense of letting go of a, you know, bucket or letting go, physically letting go of something. And so, you know, as you say, what we're letting go of is our judgments, etc., about the other person. Mm-hmm. And to me... Judgment is the opposite of compassion. It's like when we judge someone, we're saying you are, you know, you're not equal, you're not quite right, there's something. Basically, judgment says there's something wrong with you as a being. That's what a judgment is. And so when we let go of the judgment, we're actually accepting the other person as they are. Whatever it is, we're accepting them as they are. And that, to me, is the essence of compassion. Is just being open to how a person is. And that to me is a lot of what, you know, that sense of compassionate love is about. Again, it's not trying to create any particular state or attitude. I've got to be compassionate. How do I do that? I've got to actually do this and think about this and I've got to practice being compassionate. No, no. In all of this, in all of what we've been talking about, it's the opposite. It's taking away the blocks to a natural quality that is there we are all naturally compassionate we all Mm -hmm. are but then when we get into judgments and things that veils or overshadows that natural compassionate nature and so what we're doing the whole time we're letting go of judgment we're letting go of what veils and natural compassion and so we just naturally begin to feel compassionate towards people and that's why you know Most spiritual teachers, you know, they are generally loving, compassionate people because they have gone beyond all that crazy thinking stuff that takes us off into judgment and grievance and anger and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Lovely. We all worry about the future, what will happen, what will be. How do we let go of that and just learn to live for today with a sense of stillness and calm and peacefulness?
1: I think really by practicing what we've been talking about here off and on in various ways. When we look to tomorrow, we easily, you know, today's world, fill ourselves with fear and anxiety and also with maybe anger and things. And it's going to be more of that and just realizing whenever we get caught up in that, just to choose to let go, to come back, to touch into our own beingness because that's where so much of our creativity, our power, our lovingness, it all resides inside us. So we need to better step back, come back home in order that we can then go out and deal with the world and ourselves as effectively and lovingly as possible.
2: That's lovely. Are there any simple practices briefly that you recommend to people who would like to begin learning how to let go?
1: I think what we've been talking about, letting it in, first of all, just letting in the experience, letting it be, choosing not to follow thoughts that are just a waste of time, mm-hmm. those sorts of things.
2: Would you say the body scan is a very good kind of meditation for a beginner just because it's so easy, like lie back yeah. and relax each part, isolate each part of your body and yes. start yeah. there?
1: Yeah, very much, and noticing what's going on. Noticing, as you do that, where there is tension, and also noticing how it feels when you let the body relax. That's mm-hmm. also important.
2: What is bliss for Peter Russell? Ah, <laughs> why does everybody sigh when I ask that? <laughs> I, for me, for me,
1: it's just that what we've been talking about—the letting go, the being in the moment, coming home to myself. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you find that you do it more than the average person?
1: I like to think so, yes. (laughs) That's wonderful.
2: That's so wonderful. It's so wonderful that you're teaching people how to achieve that. I want to thank you very much, Peter Russell, for being with us today. It's really been delightful. I truly could have done another full hour (laughs) with you. (laughs) So I hope that you'll come back again. Yeah, love to, love to. What is the best way for people to contact you, connect with you on social media, and of course, to get a copy of your beautiful book?
1: Right. The easiest way... um, it's probably through my website. I mean, the social media, there's much, much more on my website, which is just peterrussell.com. There's a lot of stuff I put on social media. There's articles. There's videos, about 400 pages of videos, meditations, audios. Some of my books are up there in full. Lots of stuff I've written over the ages, and it's always growing. So that's just peterrussell.com, two hours on Russell. My Facebook is just peter.russell. That's Facebook, and I'm probably still more active on Facebook. Twitter is Peter J. Russell, and my Instagram, which I'm posting more on, actually lots more these days, is, is, I think, Peter Russell Author. One word, Peter Russell, Yes, author.
2: I found that today when I posted about this interview, so <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I want to thank you again, Peter Russell. It's really been delightful. And uh, everyone, I really encourage you getting a copy of this book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. It's a slim book. You can read it over a weekend and uh, it's just delightful. But I'm going to come back to it and savor it time Lovely. and time again. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. I just, I really enjoyed this time with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Peter. We're going to go on a short commercial break, more with Finding Your Bliss and some final thoughts when we come back, back in a moment.
0: CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together.
2: Hi, we are back and this is the show Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740 FM 96.7. And my final thoughts for you are to have this book, Letting Go of Nothing on Your Bedside Table. And because it's so slim and sleek and the chapters are so short and sweet, you can actually read a different chapter every night to deepen your understanding of meditation and letting go and letting be. Each week we spotlight a fantastic person on finding your bliss, whether it's a celebrity or an author. And we often feature a singer, songwriter, or a musician on the show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. And if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Also, what did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics you would like us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach me and contact me at bliss dot com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And all you have to do is search up Judy Liebrack. And of course, you can always follow us at the Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guests for being on the show today. Thank you to Peter Russell. Also, thank you to Meg Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, Lauren Kaminsky, producer and audio engineer Naira Amani, associate editor and video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Centre. For everyone here, I'm Judy Librach, reminding you all to let go, let in and let be and take one step closer to finding your bliss.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.